Hello, this is Property Matters, a weekly catch-up on all matters property, supported by Fairview International Property Consultancy and auctionproperty.co.uk. And we're live every Sunday from 10am on YouTube, Facebook, LinkedIn and our website, propertymatterstv.co.uk. If you're watching on our website, please leave us a Google review. And if you're on the socials, then please leave us a comment in the comments section and join in our conversation. If you'd like to suggest a topic or a question you'd like us to cover, then it's hello at Property Matters tv.co.uk for the email address. We also, of course, have a show on a podcast. So if you're on the move, you can listen to the show as well. That's out Monday, 10 a.m. on all the platforms you can see over on the far side. And we're live on Dilsey Radio every week as well. Let's take a look at the property news with our property expert, Joe Joshi. Hi, Joe. Yes, good morning. Good morning, Paul. Good morning, everybody. Good morning to the viewers and, of course, to our listeners. Uh, happy Sunday. Indeed. And... Uh, We'll go straight in and start talking. There's a real rental flavour to everything this morning, Joe. Uh, the latest Zoopla UK rental market report is out. 18 months of double-digit rental inflation is the headline here. Uh, as you can see, 10.5% annual rental inflation for new lets in the UK. Scottish rental growth is the highest at 12.7% and a 28.4% rent as a percentage of high uh, of earnings highest for a decade. So it's, um, it's, it's an interesting report and certainly some mixed uh, news in there. Rents for new lets are up 10.5%. That's up uh, over a year ago from or down from 12.2%. Rental inflation has been in double digits for 18 months. Average renter has seen a cost rise of 2,800 over the last three years, which is quite something. Scott Scotland's got the fastest growth in rents, but then some of the lowest rents initially, so perhaps no surprise there. And the UK rented sector remains stuck in a period of low supply and high demand. Affordability is the key influence on rental growth. Rents continue to outpace earnings and rental affordability is now its worst for over a decade. Rents for new lets expected to increase by 9% in 2023, then slow down to around 5 to 6% in 2024. Makes some interesting reading, Joe. What's your thoughts on it? Yes, it's gone crazy, isn't it? It's almost like it's gone the other way where house prices were, you know, zooming up in 2019, 2021, um, 22. Um, and of course, you know, went up to beyond double digit figures it was like 22 20 25 in some cases as an increase and now of course um with with the lending situation and of course the capacity for people to borrow and the way the interest rates are gone the rental market has gone completely gaga um as you can see from the figures that we have been presented today by zupra um and of course you know the, the it, it's the reverse the demand is uh, very high and the, and of course the supply is limited and the supply has obviously been starved and limited by the certain situations that have happened within the buy-to-let market uh, period, uh, i.e. a lot of people exiting the buy-to-let market because the um, affordability, not from the renter's point of view, but from the uh, landlord's point of view, has just not become viable anymore. The, the mortgage borrowings have gone up so high over the last um, six months, seven months that um, you know, it's now almost easy for them to get out of there. In fact, it's easy for them to get out of there and put their money into a long-term savings deposit without having the hassle of the rental. So, uh, hence, the market has gone absolutely crazy uh, because of the supply and the demand situation. And, and that is, I can't see that sort of waning at this moment in time until the government comes in with so many special deals for the buyers and for the landlords, which I assume will happen during the course of the end of this year, beginning of next year. 
um, you know, that, that's kind of anticipated. But the, the question is that that's when um, the rental market might start to take a slight dip. But the concern really is the affordability here, you know, um, and I know that uh, a lot of people are suffering. We've gone back to an age where they're sharing, you know, because the, a property has come along, somebody might rent it and then they end up bringing a sharer, which that wasn't the case, that, that age had died. So it was less the case that somebody would rent it and then have the whole two bedroom perhaps for themselves or could afford to just take a one bedroom and found that that one bedroom was sufficient for them. Now they're having to sort of think about the one bedroom and maybe converting the living room into a, a sharer so that they can actually reduce the, the rentability. But of course, they've got to be in a position to have the affordability to rent it in the first place. It looks like the rises in rents are just basically following inflation, so around 9% this year and then 55 to 6% next year. What I find interesting is demand for rented homes, Joe, is 20% lower this year than it was last year, but still 51% above the five-year average. I'm not sure how that works. Number of homes for rent is 20% higher than a year ago, but remains 30% below the average for this time of the year. That's another stat I find hard. So the number of homes for rent has gone up. It's 20% higher, but the demand, um, but, but remains 30% below the average for this time of the year. I'm not sure how that quite works, but that's a feature across the whole of the UK. And annual UK rental growth is currently at 10.5%, down from 12.1% from a year ago, as we said, uh, as the demand moderates and the supply slowly improves, I guess. Rental growth has been running in double digits for 18 months. Average rents have increased by £110 per month over the last year. The average, the annual increase of, uh, an annual increase of £1,320 over the year. And over the last three years, rents for new lets are up by an average of £2,772 per year, compounding cost of living pressures for renters the affordability of renting will have an incredible increasingly important impact on rental growth in the coming months so some some interesting figures there uh, so i was surprised to read that actually the number of homes available for rent is up 20 percent because we've been led to believe that so many landlords are selling up well that's because there's a whole bunch of new landlords that are actually coming back into the market you have to understand that uh, when you look at the level of borrowing that went up, uh, i.e. The, the, uh, the mortgage rates that went up for the older landlords that were coming out of the market, they came out primarily because they just was not afford it wasn't affordable for them. But now is the right time for new landlords to buy because basically, a they are probably buying the properties at a slightly better price than they probably would have done a couple of years ago. Not that it's a drastic reduction, but it just means that there are, uh, the sellers are a little bit more flexible. So even if it's a, a 5% or a 10% um, negotiation on the original price, not forgetting that the prices went up by literally 20, 25% over the last three years. So even if they were taking a, a little slice off of that margin for say 10% to sell, it means that the new borrowers, the new lenders, uh, sorry, the new uh, landlords that are coming into the marketplace are now able to negotiate a slightly better price on the purchase. And of course, now are set under the new rules of what that rental market um, buy to let mortgage might be. Taking that one step further forward, you can see the rentals have gone up so much. So they've now compensated. So the supply has become a little bit easier or is becoming a little easier. Uh, primarily because there's a much better gap. So I think it's, you, you'll find it's the new um, buy-to-let landlords that may be coming into the market 
knowing that their their rental values are covered and their their, their lending is covered. Interesting to look at uh, the uh, annual rental growth across the UK. So 4.2 is the lowest increase, but and that's in Northern Ireland. But in Scotland, it's 12.7, as we said, which has overtaken London as the area with the fastest rental growth. Rents for new lets in Scottish cities are up 15.6% or 15 higher in Edinburgh and Dundee and up 137 in Glasgow. Now, the interest, interesting thing here is the introduction of rent controls in Scotland, which came in in September last year. And they say this is having an interesting effect effect because these have capped increases in rents for existing tenancies at 3% a year. Uh, as properties become vacant, landlords can reset the rent to the full market rate. This means landlords are seeking to maximise the rent for new tenancies to cover increased costs and allow for the fact that future rent increases will be capped over the life of the tenancy. This has added extra impetus to uh, rental growth in Scotland versus other parts of the UK. So when the property, uh, when the tenancy finishes and a new tenant comes in, that's their opportunity to, to hike the price because they know they're only going to get 3% every year from then on if they stay. Yeah, I mean, that's that's not, it, it actually has existed all the time, Paul, to be perfectly honest with you, that in increase. The problem has been, I've been speaking to um, landlords recently here in, in, in the UK, not necessarily the ones in Scotland, but what happens is you get comfortable. So if you've got a, a tenant that's been a good tenant um, and, you know, they pay on time and, and the relationship is really good, they feel almost um, obliged, you know, to sort of say, well, actually, they're a good tenant. I don't really want to put an extra pain on them. I want to do the increase. If it was done correctly, based on the ASD, the short short tenancy agreement, and based on the fact that they can probably increase an annual rent, they probably could have all been in par. But what's happened is there's been a, a lack of increase going on. Now, all of a sudden, everybody wants to try and exercise that particular clause. And what happens here in Scotland is that, uh, yes, you know, it's good that they're actually putting it in and increasing it annually. And yes, they would, would cap it. But if you look at the, uh, the short, short old tenancy agreement, the standard agreement ha does have a provision in there for landlords perhaps to negotiate or increase. But if you haven't exercised that by serving the appropriate notices to tell the, the tenant that, by the way, we're coming to the end of our tenancy agreement, we are likely to hike the, the rate by one, two, three, four percent, whatever the amount might be, then it's a, it's a different story. But I think that uh, it is good that they are including that because, and I think people now that are renting long term are, are getting more familiar with this uh, clause and will probably look out for it uh, and, and, and work with that. They're saying that the rental market remains in a period of low supply and high demand. Rental growth supply is the for, 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 for growing rental supply is the most efficient and sustainable way to reduce rental growth. However, levels of home building and net new investment by private landlords is falling and set to remain weak in 2024 due to the impact of these higher borrowing cost costs. One um, bright spot is the new investment from corporate landlords in the build to rent sector, which we've covered a few times on this show, uh, boosting supply in many cities centres. However, rental levels set by corporate landlords are above average and not at a scale to impact a wider market. Many existing renters will also try to avoid moving and paying higher rent, delivering a further drag on available supply. The net result is that the average estate agent has less than 10 homes to rent compared to a pre-pandemic average of 16.5 homes. I heard the other day that um, somebody that I was talking to whose um, uh, son was trying to get a uh, rental property, they literally had to do like a CV 
and send that in with a kind of covering letter just to just to, to become the best tenant or potential tenant of all the hundreds that were literally applying for this one property. So the thing with the CV situation has become on this affordability and especially in cities, moreover, and perhaps where you've got um, university towns um, and, and people are chasing for that set accommodation uh, that is limited within around perhaps the campus and so forth. So, yeah, uh, the reality is that the people are having to almost sell themselves to say that they are the best tenant for that particular property. Uh, average rent as percentage of gross earnings. So back in July uh, of 2010, it's around 26%. Uh, the average across that 10 years is 27.2 um, and it went to, to March 21 which I guess was middle of Covid wasn't it Joe about 25.6% of your average gross earnings uh, yeah. but now of course it's rocketed from 25.6 to 28.4% um, so that's what's really putting the squeeze on people and of course it's higher now than it's been in the last 10 years. But it's not only just the, the rental values, Paul. The reason why they're having to do these particular CVs is the other, other bits to be affordable. So the rents have gone up, of course, and so have all the utility costs. So it's the overall commitment that they've got to now gauge if that person or the persons can afford it. And, um, and, and so don't want to get involved with new tenants that then lock themselves into a thing by saying they can afford it and actually find that they can't afford it. Now, obviously, there's no... Um, uh, cover for loss of jobs or, or circumstances which obviously are beyond most people's control but obviously the best precautions taken are, are, are to make sure that they uh, are covered and they can do their affordability in the first place. With all this growth in uh, rental costs Joe do you think there's a case for uh, rent controls like they have in Scotland across the UK? Yeah, I can't really see it because it's so varied. I mean, no disrespect to Scotland. Scotland is obviously a little bit more, you know, um, close in the sense of where they are going to be. So you've got two or three main main point points. You know, you've got your Aberdeens and you've got your uh, Edinburgh and Glasgow scenario. But when you look at the UK wide, there's it's just such a big wide gap in order to be able to set some sort of rent control from, you know, literally down from Newcastle to London. Um, it's such a variety based on other universities or or just affordability or just communication with work. But I think, yes, I mean, you know, they have uh, mooted that uh, they should consider that or certainly the London mayor and the London constituency have turned around and said that they would like to see some sort of rent cap. But that just makes it very difficult for investors to buy. Um, and, and so subsequently it will squeeze on the supply. So it's, I don't think it's actually going to be something that would work um, in the UK. You mentioned that renters are sharing increasingly now. And the other thing that uh, is happening, of course, is that they're renting less space. So they're getting to smaller properties. Data from the Resolution Foundation uh, found private renters have experienced a 16% reduction in floor space per person over the last 20 years. So that's an interesting one. So they're actually going down on what their expectations were. Well, we can't get that big three-bed family home. We're just going to get a small three-bed or maybe a terrace three-bed or, or, or even a two-bed. Well, I'm not really sure how they can shrink much more than the, the houses that are shrunk in the UK in the first place. We have a limited amount of space and, and they can't build much more than they can. So, yeah, I'm, I'm sure if you are calculating it per square foot, um, not to say that not all of the new homes that have been built are actually at maximum level. They're maximum level for the developer, but not necessarily for the 
for the renter or the, or the borrower that's going to live in there. Um, so yes, I mean, there could be a statistic that shares that yeah, the space is, is lessened, but that's not, I don't think, due to the fact that there's a demand or, an, or, or a lesser demand. I think it's just a case of what the supply of the type of properties that are available. Rental growth is on track to end the year at 9% and they reckon around uh, 6% next year. Rental growth is higher than we anticipated due to faster earnings growth and the impact of higher mortgage rates, keeping more people renting, of course. Um, let's just have a quick look. Uh, it's a bit small, but uh, this gives you the um, the actual rents that people are paying in certain areas. So lowest is in the northeast, £649 per calendar month. Then you go to Northern Ireland, 744 then uh, uh, Scotland at 748 that's up 12 and 12.7% as we said and you've got variously the northwest 795 Yorkshire and Humber 758 as we come down of course things the country things start to get higher east midlands 816 852 in the west midlands 814 in wales and then here come the big ones you've got uh, southwest at uh, 1016 per calendar month then you go to um, the east of england up 9.8% at 1. Uh, 1111 pounds and then the two big ones of course not surprisingly the southeast at 1254 pounds per calendar month and then london a whopping 2053 that's the average rent in london that's astounding isn't it yeah well you can see now why they have to have a cv in the first place to justify their existence <laughs> yeah. it's like it's like it's like going for the best job yeah you've got to put the best cv forward to try and see if you can uh, you can win that over and yes that's exactly the case in, in certain, certainly in london southeast of england um and 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 commuter belt and also of course the stockbroker belt which are, which are all the home counties all of them are reachable and as long as there is a connection that is uh, getting you into into london and it's within a, a given time all of those areas are now doing extremely well in the rental market and have historically done extremely well in the sales market. That's the data we should say from Zoopla up to July 2023. They published this in September, of course, um, and uh, that's why Recovering came out in the middle of last week. And uh, But it's the data up to the end of July, just to be uh, clear. Uh, as it's uh, going back to school time in terms of universities as well, I wanted to cover this. And we haven't really talked about university buy-to-lets, have we, Joe, in the past? But obviously everyone's been doing that trip up and down the country, getting their kids back to universities uh, around the country. We've all been there and done that one. <laughs> and... Um, uh, uh, it's interesting to, to talk about this because we've never really talked about uh, buying to let for a university. I mean, let's just start more generally, Joe, by just asking you to give us some thoughts on whether it's still a good idea to do that now um, and what sort of things should we be careful and, uh, and watching over, as it were. Well, university towns have uh, notoriously and historically been a great investment for all landlords. Um, there is a guaranteed amount of rent coming in in that, that area. We know that uh, year in, year out, um, term in, term out, there's going to be you know, new students moving in. Um, obviously, there's a slightly wider type of student there. They're, they're normally sharers, so they might have three or four of them you know, renting a place or one person renting and then sharing it. But for landlords, it's a great investment. They know that the you know, students are going to um, be there year in, year out, the university towns are growth. So they've been a great um, uh, location. And, and as time has gone on, and of course, you know, we experienced it firsthand, 
um, when my daughter was going to a university, uh, number two is still to go, but number one is, has been, that, you know, we saw the type of accommodation um, that was available throughout her time at university from obviously having the accommodation in the halls, you know, on site at the beginning of the first year, then moving out to sharing, and then the next time, you know, they get to a point where they want to perhaps almost reduce the number of sharers or they might have four or five in one but next time around they're going to have two or maybe three and so it's the size of accommodation but the key to all of that of course is accessibility and it's around the campus something that they, they can commute to very easily nine times out of ten walk to um, so that basically they're not they're very far they don't want to take their cars or well, if they do take their cars it's about getting um, parking spaces etc so every little bit you know cost wise affects those that are funding it which is people like you and me Paul the parents <laughs> so uh, then you've got to make sure that they can get on the best sites um, locally um, and I've noticed that over the last uh, five six years how many um, corporate type operations have been set up now around university campuses where they are building new blocks almost designed specifically for students and not, nothing to do with private tenants uh, at all they are producing um, blocks where they have you know sort of library areas studying areas all that kind of area so that people pupils can um, use the the whole location so they might have a small studio accommodation but they have all the other facilities downstairs where they have the lounge the, the chill out zones and all that kind of stuff that they tend to want as, as students um, uh, as in terms of uh, as, as a, is it a good investment of course I mean long term if that's what you want then that's that's what you're going to get and we get a lot of people that will look at um, you know small terraces row of terraces you know, small blocks of flats or even convert and make sure that they've got enough accommodation so it has been historically a great investment and I can't see why it shouldn't continue um, at the end of the day, it's the bank of mum and dad fundamentally that's going to pay it. So, you know, they, they've got to supply the accommodation for their kids to make sure that they study well. Yeah, I was going to mention these new build-to-rent places for universities. I mean, uh, they seem to be extremely popular. I mean, certainly where, where I'm based, uh, there's five or six of them just been put up in the last couple of years. And um, they've got everything from gyms to social areas, uh, bars, all sorts of things in them. Obviously, I guess that's reflected in, in the rent paid. And you'd think that actually that's a, a potential threat to um, landlords that specialise in, in student lets, I guess. But I'm reading here that, uh, according to Mr Pearson, Ashley Pearson here, who wrote this article, that actually uh, accommodation waiting lists are at record levels uh, for university places. Yes, they are. Um, and even though they've got these big um, sort of new modern blocks, as I said, they, the students go through their own emotions and motions of what they want to do. So they may start at these type of blocks, but they may end up in a, a smaller house, perhaps, um, so that they're not part of the whole thing. Not everybody, it's not one size fits all in these situations. Uh, and we, as we all know, as we grow up, you know, we don't fit into a, uh, maybe a two-bedroom apartment. We'd rather have a two-bed two house with potentially a garden or an off-street parking of our own. We don't want to share parking, etc. There's a whole bunch of things that actually kick into these scenarios. So, um, yeah, I mean, accommodation all around the, uh, the university campuses, the universities is is popular. Um, and for for landlords, it's it's a pretty much a guarantee that you know, without fail, um, every term they are going to rent. Um, and I know, and you know yourself, 
that you know you queue up literally to get into those particular properties and if you don't get in early you're going to end up the with the, the bad of the best bunch or you're going to end up further out away from the the campus which is what the kids don't want they want to be in an area where they can um mingle um and uh, and also you know go go to the university within a walking distance or something like that I didn't know there was a thing called a buy for university mortgage, Joe. It's interesting. This is uh, where parents can help the children get on the property ladder, exploring options such as this particular product. So how it works is that they allow students to use the financial support of their parents to purchase a property, live in the aforementioned property, and be in a position to rent out any spare rooms to fellow students to cover the cost of the mortgage. This means they may not have to pay a great deal on rent um, uh, um, um, and, and get some good accommodation that they will graduate from a university as also homeowners. Borrowers can take out a mortgage of up to 100% of a property's value, provided a security of up to 20% is made as cash deposit or as collateral charge against the value of a parent's house. As the mortgage is taken out on a joint borrower sole proprietor basis, both the child and the parent are responsible for the mortgage repayments, but only the borrower is registered as the legal owner of the property. Um, so there's a case study here from Loughborough Building Society in which a 21-year-old medical student with three years remaining on his course bought a three-bed property in Bristol for a purchase price of 302500 The borrower took a 100% buy-for-uni buy uni mortgage with a 20% collateral charge on the father's house equivalent to 60500 While the borrower is the legal owner, his 57-year-old father, who is also a doctor, will be listed on the mortgage uh, as a JBS which is the um, the thing I mentioned a moment ago. Mortgage was taken out on a variable rate discount basis and has monthly repayments of $1,484.82, which the borrower plans to pay by renting out the two spare rooms at a rate of £600 each, leaving him responsible for the £284.82 shortfall. Once the borrower graduates and is earning a salary, the collateral charge against the father's house can be uh, released and he can then remortgage onto a standard product, sell the property on the open market or rent it out to other students should he decide to move away. It's not for everybody, of course, and we're not financial advisors and we're not recommending that you take one of these things out, of course, because we're not allowed to do that kind of thing. But I thought that was an interesting example. Only 284 to pay a month and you come out with a property. Yeah, no, and of course there's capital growth potentially in that, so it's not a bad way to consider uh, investing, and, and these products have existed, um, but the problem always with these things is is that 20%, and, and if, if the parents have a, either the equity or the will to want to actually uh, go into that, um, and of course their own, own, own uh, personal liabilities may not allow them to do that, so it is, it is a case, and as, as you rightly say, in this particular case study, um, the parent was a doctor. So obviously there is a stability in the type of income that might be coming and his, his situation may allow that to. But yes, each to their own. And it's of course, as, it, as always, these are always um, subject to um, all the conditions uh, that are on the mortgages to make sure that they actually can meet the criteria that is put. But certainly not a bad idea for those that can do it because obviously not only is their child ending up paying a lesser amount, um, they are also equally um, maybe going to gain some capital growth. Now, it might be that the child, you know, that takes that odd distance around and say, well, actually, you know, 
my mum and dad are paying for the whole of this. I don't actually want to have any more students sharing with me. So all of a sudden, it may not be such a brilliant uh, idea. Sometimes too much control is equally just as bad as having no control. Um, and, and, and it's a lot easier to share. In fact, I think the sharing actually educates them a little bit more about how they've got to live with, with other people. Whereas if, if you have one boss in the situation, it will always, and the others will come and go. And if you end up having uh, someone that is not likable for argument's sake, the next thing you know is that you know, no one's going to rent the other two rooms out. And so before you know it, you can have the liability on, on your own. So it's a good idea, a good thing for those that can do it, but maybe not so good if you take the lo longer term step on it. Final story today, a little bit of a light-hearted one to finish up with today after a heavy Zoopla report. Uh, this is something that uh, I found in a chat group on uh, a social media channel the other day. How many times have you heard it's cleaner than when we moved in? So this obviously refers to uh, the situation at the end of a tenancy when uh, the property has to be cleaned uh, and whether that's done by the tenant uh, and, and up to a level that uh, people think is professional cleaning or whether it's actually done by another company and then who pays for it. So this is uh, some of the comments that were, were posted underneath this. But let's just talk about that first. So when you leave a tenancy, when you end a tenancy and you leave the property, Joe, as the tenant, um, obviously there is a responsibility to clean it, but there seems to be quite a bit of debate as to what standard that's done to. Do you want to just fill us in on that first? Yes, interesting. So when, when someone is renting a property, theoretically, apart from all the check-ins that you do, you should have had an inventory done um, and make sure that both the tenant and the landlord are happy and signed it off. The appropriate photographs are taken. It's a proper inventory. The problem with those things are that both the landlord and the tenant are normally loath to pay someone um, to say that they want them to do it. It's like a third-party inventory company that will come along and take that and, and create a file, a folder, and, and then you park that in part of your agreement. So you can actually see what you've rented and the quality and the type. But when that is out, or the inventory is a lighter inventory in the sense that they haven't taken the photographic evidence of all of the things, they might have taken the main room shot or the kitchen shot um, and said, here you are, here's a kitchen, that's what it was. And then all of a sudden they've gone, it's a case of when the deposit has to go back and the, and, and the renters argue at the end as to what is clean. Now, what is clean to one person is not necessarily clean to another. Um, and um, so it it's becomes a matter of opinion. So, yes, we often come across these arguments about that, you know, when I took the property on, it was clean, but now it's cleaner because I've had it done professionally and you didn't have it done professionally. And again, it's the same scenario for the professionals, some cleaners that you may hire to do the job. It's about what they believe is clean. <laughs> you know, you imagine some several people are hired to do a job. There's a variety and variation of what each person believes is clean. So there's always an argument about these things. And there are many, many stories about when people have come along and said, you know, this was not there or this was there. Um, you did this and we did that situation. Look what we did to improve it for argument's sake. You know, people were, I mean, I remember one where somebody had actually painted a mural on the, on the wall. Um, and uh, because that's what the mural and so forth. And at the end of that tenancy, when the mural had to be removed, there was a massive argument of what was, in their opinion, a betterment of that particular property. Obviously, the painter 
felt that the mural enhanced the property and the landlord said i gave you a very clean simple property and now the next person may not want your mural so you'd have to have it redone um and and so there was the argument of what i believe is now better i've given you a nice property back your property back yes i've painted this mural but actually i think it's better than have, having basic magnolia paint on it the problem is the next person that comes in may not like that mural may not like looking at that mural um, and, and, and so it's got to go. The landlord would have to pay someone to come down and paint it or get rid of it. Um, and obviously the, the previous tenant was emotional about the fact that he, he or she had spent all this time making this piece of art on this wall, which they did not have the appropriate permission in the first place to do uh, from the landlord. So there's a constant argument to, uh, as to what, what that looks like. And we've had scenarios where people have taken cupboards out of, of kitchens um, and, and felt that they, they would make it better because it was more workable space and they actually managed to put a different type of, um, they had maybe um, uh, microwave ovens or other ovens that just didn't fit between the two, uh, you know, the top, the top cupboard and, 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 and the work surfaces. So they've taken the cupboard out and, and, and now that cupboard's ended up in a garage which is ruined and it's, it's bad. So that replaces the kitchen. So it's a constant argument of what they should and shouldn't do. But people do it. They do it on the whim, don't they? They just think that, that you know, what they're doing is right um, and it should be okay. But of course, you do need the appropriate consent from, from the landlord or the, or the managing agents. Comments in this group were, were hilarious, to be honest with you. And uh, many people said, if I had a pound for every time I'd heard that phrase, it's cleaner than when I moved in, uh, they, would be, uh, they wouldn't need to rent properties out, <laughs> was what somebody actually said. And uh, somebody made the point that when you hear it's now cleaner than when I moved in, that's always a warning sign that it hasn't been done properly. But uh, one contributor said, uh, um, it's always worrying when you uh, see the tenant move out and they say, oh, I've made a lot of improvements. And he said, no, painting half a room in orange is not an improvement. <laughs> Somebody said, I just had the same thing, but in blue. Not only did they do the walls, they did the skirting boards and the carpet. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Can yeah, you yeah. imagine? Um, we had a tenant that installed a pond. He was adamant it added value. In the middle of the overgrown lawn was half of a child's plastic sandpit with stones around it, and it was bright blue. The same tenant used a shower with the shower curtain open, then wondered why the top end of the bath made it into the kitchen below. <laughs> His content insurance paid out. Rather than having the work done, he attempted to plaster over the damage and prop up the bath so he could keep the insurance money. When it was yeah. time to leave, he had to decorate. One bedroom was four colours, from the old paint from the old paint tins found in the shed, uh, one of which was gloss paint. He put that on the walls. The walls were ruined, and it cost thousands to put right. He did not use dust sheets, so the carpet ended up in the bin. His son, who was the cause of most of the problems, turned eighteen and became a town councillor. I mean, you couldn't make these things up, can you? <laughs> no, no, and they they, they they absolutely exist, and you know they they, they are very comical in in many ways, but equally very expensive in others. You imagine that they done. I mean, I've had scenarios where someone's gone in and said, like, you know, I paid for this carpet, so I'll take it with me. You know, and um, they should take it with them because they didn't weren't allowed to put it in the first place. It was a floor, but because they didn't like the noise on the on the wooden floor, they thought what they'll do is they'll um, pay put the carpet down. It made it some more soundproof, and and subsequently wanted the money for the carpet. So it ended up to a point where, you know, the argument was such that 
nobody was, the landlord wasn't going to pay for it. The tenant said, well, I'll just rip it out and take it away with me. And he said, well, that's fine. You do me a favor because I'm going to have to rip it out anyway. So yes, there's this abundance of stories of, of this sort of still. Um, but then, you know what? That's what makes the, makes the world go around. We need all those scenarios. We need that light humor every so often, which sounds nicer after the event, like now, as we're talking about it, but at the, at the time and on the event, trust me, it can be really, really annoying. Absolutely, yeah. We'll leave the last comment to somebody called Scott Taylor. Bless him. He said, uh, I'm not sure which one I've heard the most. It's cleaner than when I moved in or I'll pay you the rent on Friday when I get paid. <laughs> which, 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 which normally means I won't pay you that and I'll be off. So, uh, yeah, it's, it's, it's always a good Who'd yeah. be a landlord, eh? OK, and on that bombshell, I suppose that's where we should end this week's uh, Property Matters. See you again soon.